Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to the Your Wealth podcast. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Most listeners of this podcast are already investors and traders, but I also get feedback from those who are really keen to start investing but aren't quite there yet. What's really interesting is there's an awful lot of information out there to help you get started in investing. Quite a bit about trading now too, which is a little bit newer, but a lot of the tips and tricks of ensuring you don't blow up a trade can sometimes elude even people who've been investing for a really long time. Markets change and the way they work is really interesting. So to bring you some of those tips and tricks today, I'm joined by Graham O'Brien, who is the Senior Manager of Equity Derivatives at the ASX. Graham, thanks so much for joining me. Not a worry, Gemma. Graham, let's start with you personally, because this is something that you have been doing for a long time. So how long have you been trading or investing? And what do you call yourself? Are you a trader or an investor? Oh, look, I'm an investor. Okay. Even though I work for uh, the ASX and the area that I look after is more trading, um, I'm still a long-term investor. Look, uh, I first started trading almost 30 years ago. Very first thing I bought, Commonwealth Bank shares in the float. And back then, everyone was buying public floats. That was my first share that I purchased. Still own them today, so it's quite nice. I think that was five bucks back then, so nice little nice little earner. There are, that's a wonderful way to start. I think that era was... Um, was quite wonderful for many people. It certainly gave you a great taste for the market in a very positive way. You didn't get burnt. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and it seemed like every float was a winner back then, except for AMP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one's, that one's um, not quite what it used to be. Yeah. It's a, So on that, so one of the stories I like to tell newer and younger investors is just how different markets are now. When you've got online trading, everything's visible to a retail investor. The tools and information and insights that a retail investor have now are very similar to what a professional investor would have had 30 or 40 years ago, right? Yeah, for sure. It's amazing how much information is available just at your fingertips. It's it's uh, it's quite interesting. You used to have to flick through the financial review or the newspaper to even get the prices at the end of the day. They're now live on the screen, ready for you to see. Yeah. And the other thing is you can place your own trades. Yeah, yeah it's great. Don't have to ring the broker anymore. <laughs> I was explaining that I had to look up my first broker in the yellow pages and you can imagine how they excited they were to find out that, you know, I had a, probably about $400 to invest or something. <laughs> it, <laughs> it wasn't the most, uh, it wasn't the most salubrious experience. You feel like a bit of an idiot, <laughs> but it was worth doing, right? We it was like started. an interview just to get a broker, wasn't it? They were interviewing you as the client. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you rich enough? Definitely not. But I hope to become so at some point. So, Graham, you often present at the ASX Investor Day, so plenty of people listening will have seen you before and heard you speak, and your sessions are fantastic for a start, but secondly, you, you get that opportunity to talk to investors frequently. What is the thing that you think most surprises investors as a new piece of information? Look, especially for new investors, it's about value. And so many people get confused by looking at a share price and thinking the share price is what the value of that company is. And they'll just compare one share price against another. And it's quite amazing that share price really has no direction on value 
from one company to the next. So actually starting to educate people about all of those little tools that sit around the market, not just the share price, is really important. So the first thing is price-earnings ratio. Just having a good understanding of the share price versus the earnings of the company then lets you be able to compare companies within their own sectors. It's it's a really simple tool, but it's readily available for everyone. So I think that's probably the first thing people have to learn is share price isn't actually the true indication of the value of a company. So yes, that is... That's an extraordinary one. So you go based on sort of relatively recent valuations, Afterpay would be worth roughly the same as CBA. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's quite amazing. <laughs> if you were using that principle, yeah. which we hope that people don't, <laughs> not for too long anyway. So you recently told me, and I find this fascinating, that professional investors have started shifting their trades during the day uh, rather than at the open, which may have been previously where they were placing their bigger trades, they're starting to move to the close. Now, can you explain to us what happens at the open and what happens at the close and then why someone would shift? Yeah, for sure. So when we open the market at the ASX or close the market, it isn't like normal trading where you just see the price of that share and you can pay up if you're buying or sell down to the price at where people are obviously looking to buy in the market itself. Um, it's actually an auction process that we use at ASX and we allow everyone to put all of their buy orders in the screen and all of their sell orders and obviously the buy orders go up in price, all the sell orders go down in price to the extent that we actually have an overlapping market. So you could have a stock that might have people wanting to buy it at $20 and people actually wanting to sell it at $18. What we do at the ASX is look at all of those orders, so the buys and sells at all the different prices, where the most shares can go through at during that auction at that particular price, that will determine the price for everyone on that open and that close. So effectively, these events of the open and close are liquidity pooling events. It actually allows lots and lots of shares to all trade at once, all at the same price. And you can imagine if I'm a large institution, that's really valuable to me because I'm actually getting a lot of shares transacted all at the same price. Right. So why are they changing? So they're changing because the closing auction now has more liquidity than what the opening auction actually had before. And tell me why that's happening. So the reason behind that is that lots of people are looking towards the end of the day as to the value of what they value it in their actual closing books for the fund itself. So if I can get as close to the value at where I'm going to value that security at the end of the day, that actually helps me in my transactions that I've done throughout the entire trading day. If I do that on the open, there could be a mismatch from me actually trading on the open to what the value of that uh, security or share is on the close itself. There's one change to that though, and COVID's actually changed a little bit, and that's retail investors. Lots of retail investors through NAB or any other retail broker are really starting to get involved in the share market. They're actually putting their orders on while the market's closed, so overnight. So there's actually a big backlog of orders that are coming in on the open. So there's actually just in the last few months been a little bit of a shift back to opening markets because lots of orders are waiting to come on the market when it reopens after people have looked at the share market when they get home at night. Yeah, interesting. And when people are placing those orders overnight, are they relatively close to the market price and creating a nice sort of healthy open or are they all over the place? So most orders are at market. I just want to deal when the market opens, get me that price. So you'll find that uh, those particular orders don't necessarily uh, don't necessarily get placed close to where uh, the open will actually occur. It's just placed to ensure that they get, uh, get a fill on the open. 
It's a question without notice, but I think it's one that quite a few investors who've been around for a while would have found absolutely fascinating to observe. In the early days of COVID, when things really started moving and we saw that just extraordinary volatility and real volatility intraday, and there was one astonishing day, which you'll remember, it was a Friday and I can't remember what the date was. 13th. <laughs> <laughs> well, that explains it. Um, but the market was was either down five and ended up seven or it was down seven and ended up five. So it was 12% intraday volatility, yeah. which is just Eye-watering, right? I've not seen that before. Certainly wasn't watching closely if it's happened. Can you talk to us? And what was most astonishing to watch on those days was just how dramatically the market closed closed out. The change at the close was unbelievable. So can you talk through what was happening there on those days? So, so what you can have is... Um, a lot of the very large traders that lead a market. So you've got big international sovereign wealth funds. Um, you've got large superannuation funds here in Australia that really are buying lots of shares or selling lots of shares on a particular trading day. Um, they can actually change their mind during a trading day as well, just from what they see in the activity that occurs during the day. And on those big movement days, they very well could have been net sellers at the start of the day because every, everything was looking terrible. I really need to start uh, liquidating some of the holdings that I have within my portfolios. But as the market's turning, they soon realise that, hold on, we might have moved this thing a little bit too far. We're now going to be net buyers on the day. So from that extent, I now have to buy back all of those shares that I sold at the beginning of the day, plus more to be a net buyer. So but in a much shorter time frame. So I actually need to move the market a little bit harder and further as that's actually occurring. And we generally don't see that much in markets. Generally, orders at the beginning of the day is the trend and the flow of where the market's moving, but they were really unprecedented times around that uh, around that period. And we really, saw, uh, we really saw markets moving of their own accord at that particular point in time. Do you expect to see that again or was that a point in time? You can never say never, I don't think, in markets. So whilst it definitely has steadied down now and we're not experiencing that at the moment, um, we have had events over the last three or four years that have been very similar to what even happened on that 13th of March. So we had the US election, the big surprise and the big swings in the market when Hillary was in front and uh, Trump was in front. Uh, we even saw it during um, Brexit vote. Um, big swings in and out by the market, thinking something is going to occurring, the opposite happening, and big, big managers having to swap their strategies. As a retail investor, certainly there's a lot of uh, very active investors who are really enjoying that volatility and they're really, really uh, enthusiastically trading it. There have been all these stories, you and I have had a chat about this, I didn't put it in my questions, but I'll ask you anyway because we've had a chat about it. There have been all these stories about Robin Hood investors in the US and uh, people coming to market with no experience whatsoever and very actively trading, believing that it's a great opportunity to make a lot of money. And the interesting thing about it for me is everyone has made a lot of money. If you were buying anywhere down to the 13th and a little bit later, you've had a great time. You've probably done very well. If you were actively day trading, it might be different, right? And it depends on yeah. what you've been buying. But if you were just buying the market uh, and sitting on it, it's been quite interesting. Now, at Nabtrade, we looked at our data because we wanted to be confident that people weren't getting themselves into heaps of trouble. And we found that, to be honest, most of our investors are very, very vanilla. Even all the people who've just come to market recently, they've been buying the ASX 200, 
They've been buying the big four banks. They've been buying these really steady things that they're very confident will be around for a long time. So when things were looking pretty dark, they were very uh, mature and long-term in their outlook, right? Yeah. They didn't think any of the banks were going to go under, for example. Did you see anything that worried you? Look, we we didn't from an ASX perspective. It was really long-term purchasing of shares. There, there wasn't the in-and-out trading that, that you're explaining from a day trading perspective. You're exactly right. The majority of investors, if they purchase those shares in March, they're still holding on to them today. They haven't liquidated them yet. Whether we start seeing some correction pullback in the market and that's the catalyst for them to start closing out of those positions could be the case. But, what well, we're three, four months on now and still holding on to those same same uh, holdings that we had back then. So definitely uh, definitely hasn't, be, hasn't been the, the big day trading that uh, a lot of people were talking about at the time. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that from you because yeah. you guys have a much bigger data pool than we do. Yeah. And it's... It's always a bit nerve-wracking when you hear those stories. You think you don't want people blowing themselves up. And we knew obviously most people weren't because the market's gone exactly as they hoped it might. But for anyone who is being super active, you can still blow yourself up in a rising market, right? Um, we just haven't seen it, thankfully. Nah, that's right. So Australian – oh, no, what I was going to ask you. Price-sensitive announcements. So we're in a very unusual period where, frankly – we're not getting a lot of guidance from companies at all. A lot yeah. of them aren't able to give good guidance. But in a normal market, making an announcement that is likely to impact your price is a big deal. How do investors respond to that? And what are they? What happens and what do they do? Yeah, so first of all, you need to look at your broking screens that you're seeing um, each and every day you're looking in the marketplace. So first of all, the company makes an announcement. If that is a price-sensitive announcement, as soon as that occurs the ASX actually puts that stock into a halt. Uh, we call it a pre-notice period on the ASX, but effectively there's no more trading in that stock for a period of time. Price-sensitive announcement will lock it up for 10 minutes and then it will go through that same auction process again that occurred on the open or the close. So that liquidity pool, lots of people putting orders in and out and it, to match to reopen the marketplace again. The reason that we close it for 10 minutes is to ensure that everyone has time to be able to absorb that price-sensitive information. Now, for yourselves as normal traders, 10 minutes, you mightn't be looking at the market every 10 minutes. So the simplest thing is just to look at the company announcements pages, both on the broker's websites and the ASX site, just to see if there was any information that, uh, that, that was new to the market since the last time that you looked at that particular security. So if you see a big jump or a big bounce and things look a bit weird, that might be what's driving it? That's exactly right. So if I see a big bounce or a big jump, I'm going to look at two things when I'm looking at a stock. So I want to see the price movement and I'm also going to look at volume. If there's a volume spike and also price movement, then there's something bigger happening. At the same time, make sure you have a look at a company announcement and that could have been the thing that drove that, uh, that, that activity. And you guys tend to watch pretty closely wherever you see those things and there wasn't an announcement to see what's driving it as well. That's exactly right. So if there is movement in the share price and volumes backing it up as well, then uh, you call it the ASX speeding ticket. We actually uh, we put the uh, company into a halt ourselves and ask her, please explain, is there any information that you should have been giving to the market and give the company an opportunity to provide extra information that uh, that may be needed to be given to the marketplace. 
Yeah. Okay. So can you explain what is a price-sensitive announcement? What sort of information would be price-sensitive? So uh, a price-sensitive announcement um, is uh, an interim report, an annual report. They're all price-sensitive announcements. Uh, things like a downgrade, a downgrade in uh, profits or an upgrade in profits will be a price-sensitive announcement. A very large contract that that company has actually signed with someone. Things that aren't price-sensitive announcements, um, someone like a BHP might put out a mining report for um, one of its smaller mines. Really not a large price-sensitive announcement. It's something that they do regularly, so wouldn't actually put that company into a uh, halt at that particular point in time. But uh, but definitely any anything that, uh, that the company or ASX fills will actually have an impact on a share price is a price-sensitive announcement. Can you explain continuous disclosure as well in that context? Yep. It's quite important for people to understand. Yeah, exactly. So the companies themselves have an obligation to disclose to the market anything that they think will actually have an impact on its share price. And continuous disclosure means that it has to be done consistently the entire time. There's no, the nose relaxing and thinking, oh, that might have uh, might have an influence on the market or it might have an influence. The easiest way, company continuously discloses that to ASX and uh, then the company's in the clear. Yeah, nice. So one thing that certainly for me when I was first getting started, I uh, didn't understand, this is back when you had to look things up in the newspaper, which doesn't help, uh, price would move dividends, couldn't understand the correlation between the two things, knew there was obviously some correlation but didn't particularly understand it. Can you talk us through that, particularly because Australian investors love their dividends? They sure do love their dividends. So effectively, companies tend to pay dividends at the same time each year. It's almost within the day for many of our big companies. Um, Investors like to get that income stream. So if I buy that share and if I buy it a few days before the dividend uh, actually gets paid, then not only do I buy the share, but I get the dividend income from it as well. So if investors and just supply and demand, lots of people are wanting to buy that share to get access to the dividend that's going to push prices up. So that tends to be where you see the run up in the price leading into a dividend. Um, But there are some important dates that we need to be mindful of when we're actually thinking about dividends. Uh, Not only do you get the dividends, but if you're obviously an Australian investor, you get franking credits that are attached to that dividend, which are so very important, especially for a self-managed super fund. Um, There's holding rule periods that we need to abide by when it comes to uh, franking credits. So I can't just buy the the stock the day before it goes ex-dividend and sell it out the next day because I haven't held it long enough to have been seen as holding it at risk. So I need to hold it for 45 days plus the entry and exit day for me to be able to claim on those franking credits. So we kind of know when the company's going to pay a dividend in advance because they kind of do it every year. So it's those 45 days before that that we need to look for as the run-up in the share price itself. Uh, When you're looking at your breaking screens, there's a number of key things to look out for. So there's two codes that are used and status notes that we supply to brokers from the ASX. One is CD, which stands for come dividend. And that is whenever the company's announced its dividend but hasn't yet paid it, we'll note that company as a come dividend stock. As soon as the company goes ex-dividend, we'll change that status note to ex-dividend and we'll actually purge all orders in that stock on that morning. So every single order in that stock is purged out of the ASX system. You have to re-enter your order to actually go into that particular stock on that uh, on that trading day. 
Right. And then it gets paid to you? Then the dividend gets paid to you. So ex-dividend two days before the record date. And then the record date is obviously uh, when the company determines who is on the register and they pay uh, the dividend to you afterwards. Yeah, nice. It is... It's terribly important to our investors. It is yep. sort of the thing that we probably hear about most frequently, unrelated to trading behaviour, the thing that people are most interested in understanding. When's it getting paid? Why is it not in my account? Yeah, that <laughs> sort of stuff. All those details, terribly, terribly important. So your specialty is derivatives, which I am not going to ask you about today So that's a different piece of work entirely. But one point you've made is that options expiry does matter and it does affect share prices, which is something that the average investor who's not particularly interested in options might understand. So can you talk through that one for us? Yeah, really simply, options give people the right to buy shares or sell shares in the future, but it's the right to buy or sell them at a particular share price. So let's say a share is trading at $20.20 at this particular point in time. We would often have options contracts that are expiring at a $20 share price or a $20.50 share price. What you tend to find is on expiry days, there could be five, six, seven million shares all with the potential of being bought or sold at that $20 mark or that $20.50 mark. You'll tend to find the actual security towards the end of the trading day tend towards either that $20 or $20.50 share price. So you'll see share price movement closely aligned to where the actual open interest is in the options market. Interesting. And you would expect to see fairly sizable volumes at that point in time. Yeah, correct. Because obviously the the risk to people trading in the options market is if the market runs up through that level. So to hedge that risk, they have to trade more shares to obviously take away the risk if the market was to run. So you do see quite a lot of activity towards the market close on options expiry day. So how would a retail investor who's otherwise not following options at all know when options expiry day is? So quite simply third Thursday of the month. So as long as we're on the third Thursday, that's an options expiry day. So uh, keep keep an eye out for that third Thursday. That's a new day for everyone to put in the (laughs) calendar. One extra one along with your dividends. So on the same topic of days where you can see a lot of activity or a lot of volume and not really understand why, perhaps if you're not thinking about the other participants in the market and what they're trying to achieve that may be unrelated to whether or not they're super motivated to buy a stock or there's been no announcement, for example, but you're seeing the activity. I'm always asked about NAB trades, the behaviour of investors on NAB trade, right? And one of the questions is often, oh, we've seen a really big week in markets. How much of that was, you know, big traders closing out their monthly or quarterly or annual positions on your platform? And the answer for us is none. Uh, We are all retail investors, Um, There's certainly some people with very large amounts of money that moves around, but it's mums and dads and individual investors, companies and trusts and so on, not large institutions. So we don't see that, but the market certainly does. So can you talk to me about about month-end, quarter-end, annual uh, financial year, 30 June, always a big day. What happens on those days? Yeah, so the big superannuation funds need to report to their members or um, their shareholders or whatever it might be um, of the way they're, they're, they're holding their securities on the value of those securities at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter and at the end of the year. 
So quite often there might be some book squaring that's occurring because that fund didn't necessarily want to hold that security for the period, so it needs to close out of those positions or it actually wants to pick up a new security before the month end to have it into those reports, so they buy into those securities. Um, that can be large in size at times, and um, especially with some of our, our larger funds in Australia. Um, but also investors... Um, tend to um, redeem units from their funds or even transition from um, a stable fund to a growth fund or a growth fund to a stable fund uh, towards the end of the month in the quarter or end of the year as well. So if there's lots of redemptions and lots of transitions occurring, that's causing trading activity where the funds need to go overweight or underweight particular shares to accommodate for that activity that's occurring. So all of that can lead to lots of trading volume at the time. It's quite interesting because you imagine as a retail investor, an alien come down to earth, believes that people buy and sell on market because they've decided something is now good value and they want to buy it or they're selling it because they think it isn't and it's new information that has driven that. But it will be something quite unrelated in many cases and just aligning to a longer-term strategy. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And it could very, very, very simply be, uh, I know at the end of the financial year, many self-managed super funds have to uh, claim down or draw down on their fund to ensure that they've drawn the right amount of pension for uh, for the self-managed super. That happens in industry funds as well. So if everyone's having to draw down on that fund, uh, there's going to be significant trading volumes to actually pay for the drawdowns. It's an interesting question in this environment. So one of the uh, quite shocking developments through this period has been the number of individuals who've withdrawn their $10,000 parcels uh, or however much they had in superannuation. It's generally not been the full $10,000 if they didn't have that much in there, Uh, both up to 30 June and then post 30 June. That's been extended to the end of the year now. And that's the... Amounts of money are astonishing, absolutely astonishing. We're talking $42 billion, I think, at the moment now. Has that had any impact on prices that you've observed? Because obviously if you're going to make a cash withdrawal from a super fund, and particularly if you're you're a young person, your money will have been almost definitely invested on your behalf in high growth assets like Australian equities. Yep. Have you seen a lot of volume with that sort of thing that you can predict or not really? So so funds are quite smart and the tools that are that are at their disposal to be able to handle those very short term um, uh, transactions that might be occurring in the market. So yes, in the end, they have to go and buy and sell shares to accommodate for all of those uh, redemptions that are occurring. And generally, it's going to be selling shares because they need to raise the cash. Um, many funds at this point in time for their short-term trading strategy are using futures contracts. And the futures contracts give them an exposure to the share market and being able to sell effectively the whole share market in one trade, but not physically having to sell the underlying shares. Selling the underlying shares in a uh, in in a in a in a more um, less impactful way, um, and selling them at the prices that they're happy to, and then unwinding that hedge that they've got in the futures market. So it allows them to be able to obviously adjust their exposures, but not impact the share market as much. So we've seen that activity a lot more over the last three or four months. So the impact on the share market's been limited from all of those transactions. That's really interesting. I've been getting a lot of questions about it and it's been interesting to talk to different investment managers about how they're trying to manage those transitions. And a lot of people were quite critical about how a lot of the funds handled it. I was saying, in their defence, they have never been legally able 
to pay a massive, they've never had a massive liquidity event because they're not allowed to pay it out. So yep. the idea that they hadn't planned properly to not do something they were not allowed to do seems amazing to me. I mean, I quite felt sorry for a lot of people where they were going, you know, we've been managing our money because people couldn't take it out for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. We've been investing for the long term and then suddenly we found out they can take it out tomorrow and that's a different, a very different kettle of fish. Yeah, definitely. And not all funds have within their mandates to be able to use instruments like futures contracts. So there, there could be funds that um, that do have to trade the physical shares, but the majority of the big ones that are going to do the, the big movements on a market have, have that ability, which is great. That is, I think, comforting for a lot of people yeah. to know, particularly those members who are still in the funds. So you end up with this scenario where a lot of people end up with capital gains events for things that had absolutely nothing to do with them, and that's always a bit upsetting. One other thing that we were discussing was the impact of indices. So with new companies coming in or out of an index at the end of each quarter, can you talk us through that? Yeah, so the biggest two trading days we have in the equities market at the ASX is the Standard & Poor's revaluation of the S&P ASX 200 index and the MSCI World uh, Global Rebalances. Lots and lots of fund managers these days um, benchmark their returns to indices. There's even exchange-traded funds, which are purely the index itself, or index funds that are off-market as well. Those funds have to hold the underlying securities within those indices, but they can only hold them on the day that it actually moves into the index itself, because otherwise, the previous day, they wouldn't have actually um, been meeting their benchmarks in the market. So, significant amount of trading of selling out of the securities that are dropping out of the index, buying into the securities that are coming into the index. But importantly, that's all done on the market close because obviously right up until the close, the old stock was in there. It's not until after the close that the new stock comes into the index. So hence another reason why lots of activity in those auctions on the close because everyone wants to get the same price. Biggest and, days on our market are those. And so what days are they? Um, I'd have to come back to you. I'm sorry. We'll have to put it onto your uh, podcast with your readers. Um, I think – I. Th yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be able to say. It's, <laughs> That's all good. Don't it's worry. One, it's once a quarter. It's on the MSCI and Standard & Poor's website. It's going to be really interesting, I think, for traders to go, God, there's all these dates I had no idea about <laughs> and I'm going to watch volumes now and be like, it's a random Thursday. It's a random whatever day. I yeah. cannot understand why so much is happening. And now I know. That's now right. I know why all of this is happening. Any other factors that drive prices or volume that you can think of that the average retail investor just wouldn't anticipate that might lead them into choppy waters? Look, we've probably covered most of them and, and the biggest one is obviously um, index inclusion or the potential for index inclusion um, overall. Um, but it's not just the 200 index and I think that's the next point people have to realise is all of the international investors that are coming into Australia. So 30% of all of our stocks are held not by Australian funds, it's held by offshore funds. Generally, they don't benchmark themselves to the ASX 200 for their holdings in Australia. They're benchmarking to the ASX 50. So there's another index that we need to be mindful of is when a stock comes in out of the 50, all of the big overseas funds will now start uh, getting interested in those funds as well. But something to keep an eye on, I think, for the future for your, um, for your traders and investors, um, uh, social responsible indices and uh, environment and socially responsible indices are really starting to um, come to the fore. Many funds now 
um, are mandated to only hold environment, environmentally or socially uh, responsible securities. So I think something to keep an eye out for is uh, is companies that are more environment, environment and socially responsible um, will be held by fund managers more into the future. So definitely something to keep in mind. And there's indices that are available also on the Australian market and worldwide for people to look at as well. That's quite an interesting one. It's it's quite a contentious topic with people who are huge believers and people who are not believers at all. But I'm always fascinated by the weight of money argument yep. for ESG, which is the point that you're making. That's right. It's, is... all, it's all going one way. It's, it's not as though people are saying, I'm not going to invest in those securities, but there's a reason why they won't invest in other securities. So obviously more holdings means more buyers, means prices tend to go up when there's more buyers. It was so true. And also the downward pressure on those things that people don't like because Unisuper divested their coal assets and that was announced today. I mean, yeah. Unisuper is a large fund. It's not insignificant. Exactly and the right. more you see of them, the more you appreciate that it becomes less tenable for the others to stay the way they were. That's exactly right, especially if the others outperform because of that decision as well, then it becomes even less tenable. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you've always got to be terribly careful if it's driving your performance. Terribly important. Any other tips that you have for investors to help them feel more confident? It's... I find it really interesting. A lot of people focus when they first get started on either understanding simple instruments like an ETF. So I'm going to, I understand the principle of diversification and an ETF allows me to get that. So I want to understand that product and then I feel confident. Others will try to understand individual shares and get excited about buying them. You're helping people understand the market, which is another factor. Any other thoughts that would help people become more confident? Look, to me, it's why are you investing in the market? Actually write it down, put it on the fridge. So you're consistently looking at it because so many people get involved and buy shares for a particular reason and often it's for long-term wealth generation but because of a short-term market move or something that's happened just over here very short term I'm going to throw that out the window and I'm going to change my entire investment philosophy and go and trade this activity just because of what I saw. Keep on reminding yourself of why you're in the market and what you're invested for and generally the price that you're paying on the day isn't going to impact your long-term returns. So start thinking about limit orders that you can actually put in with your broker and actually I'm happy to buy that stock at $20. So if it starts dropping and get down to those levels, then be happy to buy those shares at that level and uh, put put them in the drawer and see them uh, see them generate wealth over time. But similarly, don't don't be sitting on shares that are that aren't performing for your portfolio as well, and really start setting yourself limits as to where you're happy to sell those shares that are underperforming. Don't tend to sit on them because they have underperformed. I know when I first started investing, whilst Commonwealth Bank shares that I bought on the float I've held forever, there has been some really ordinary shares that I've held on to over time because they honestly, they can't go any lower. They have to start increasing in in size. (laughs) Happy to sell the ones that have made me a profit, but keep on to the dogs in the portfolio. So really have an actual value where you're happy to hold on to those shares for the long term, but where you'll actually sell them if the company didn't meet the performance you're expecting to. I think from a strategy perspective, that point about knowing when to sell is the most challenging aspect for most investors, and I include myself. Um, (laughs) It's so difficult to detach from the decision that you made. Graeme, the ASX has extraordinary 
volumes of really high quality information for investors and you distribute it in so many ways even in COVID times you guys are great at getting out in front of investors and helping them understand the market where do people go to ensure they're keeping up to date with it all look the easiest place is the ASX website to be honest asx.com.au really that's uh, that's the starting point for everything we've got the um, podcasts or videos or even online education courses and they're consistently updated and you're always going to get the most up-to-date information there you've also got the share market game we do have the share market game that you can get through uh, through that same website so um, that was actually my first start in the market was playing the schools game year nine and ten students in New South Wales it's part of their commerce degrees so most year nine and ten students actually participate in the ASX school game if they're doing commerce as one of their electives which is a, a great tool but off the back of that there's the public share market game as well so if there's a new strategy you want to test out before you put putting your money in, into the market, then it's a great way to do it. Get in, have a go. Yeah, that's right. Graham O'Brien from the ASX, thank you so much for joining me today. Cheers, thank you. Thank you so much for listening now, as always. We really genuinely love to hear from you and we loved you tuning in in the first place. But if there are any topics you'd like to hear more about or guests you'd like to hear from, please just email your suggestions to yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.